everybody doing hoping you're having a fantastic day coming at you on a wednesday so this has been something that has been requested from me for a very very long time uh it seems like almost constantly i get requests to make this video i kind of did a shorter video like this before um, where i laid out some of the debates some of the problems but this is really where i actually get into the text of uh saint thomas or at least go throughout his corpus to look for uh, where he defines certain terms that he uses uh, and where he uh, explains himself a lot more of, of what he means in this uh, infamous question 27, article two of Tertia Pars in the Summa, where a lot of people will claim that St. Thomas actually denied the Immaculate Conception. Uh, because this is this is really the the point of boasting uh, for the Scotists. This is uh, I, I'm going to kind of comically play on it a bit, but uh, in, in another instance, it isn't. Uh, it, it is a bit serious. Well, it's very serious actually to accuse the common doctor of the Catholic Church um, of at least material uh, heresy of denying one of the dogmas of the Church, even before it was something that was settled, of course. So. It's technically possible. But uh, before we begin, I just wanted to say um, St. Thomas's prayer to Our Lady uh, really quick. So in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. O most blessed and most sweet Virgin Mary, full of mercy, to thy compassion I recommend my soul and body, my thoughts, actions, life, and death. O my Lady, help and strengthen me against the snares of the devil. Obtain me true and perfect love, with which to love thy most beloved Son, and my Lord Jesus Christ, with my whole heart, and after him to love thee above all things. My Queen and Mother, by thy most powerful intercession, grant that I may persevere in this love until death, and after death be conducted by thee to the kingdom of the blessed. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. So, uh, really what I wanted to begin uh, this whole sort of presentation with is to express my my deep dissatisfaction uh, with this discussion. Because when we get into this discussion of St. Thomas's uh, denial, the so-called denial of the Immaculate Conception, you get a, a, a few different analyses. So first, you get an analysis of St. Thomas's thought, which is completely divorced uh, from a reading of his entire corpus to see how he defines certain terms, like uh, something as simple as the stain of original sin. How does he define that term? Uh, something else like purification. How does he define that term? Uh, when we begin to look at how he defines the terms, and then also, this is also something else very important, when we look how the Dominican order, and then also the Jesuit Thomas, the Dominican order and the Jesuit Thomas have, have received St. Thomas's thought, we see it isn't as simple as the Dominicans hated the Immaculate Conception, the Franciscans loved the Immaculate Conception, they, uh, they fall with one another, and eventually the Franciscans uh, epically own the Dominicans, and the Dominicans have been embarrassed ever since, and uh, the Franciscans will forever uh, take the win. It isn't that simple. It isn't that simple. And I'm going to show this uh, a bit historically. And then uh, third, I think actually what's what's extremely helpful 
is to recognize that there is a similar case with SCOTUS. Is SCOTUS is unclear on certain aspects of the Immaculate Conception, which lead, and I, I will explain exactly how, which lead later thinkers in the school of Blessed SCOTUS to make certain grave errors in the way in which they articulate the Immaculate Conception. So there actually are uh, erroneous uh, scotistic uh, takes as well um, from his school uh, when it comes to the issue of the um, of the debt of original sin. So those things need to be remembered. And I think what's actually a bit helpful uh, and something that I am going to briefly do here, uh, one of my points, is to look at the parallels between uh, St. Thomas and Blessed Scotus, where uh, some of those very uh, cheap, um, very cheap uh, objections uh, to St. Thomas's thought. Uh, for example, some people object, well, he says purification. So obviously um, purification is a bad term to use here, right? Well, actually, Blessed Scotus describes the Immaculate Conception as a purification as well. Um, in, in the Magisterium in certain places, actually uses the term uh, purification, which I don't get into because I just want to look at the medieval context. So purification itself isn't a bad term. Uh, don't worry about it, guys. And also some will say, well, he, he separates the conception from animation. So uh, so that that's something which is evil. Well, Blessed Scotus also does that too when he explains it. So I think uh, fr from that simple compar uh, comparison, we can have some of the cheaper objections uh, fall where we can get into some of the deeper uh, objections. Then uh, uh, another aspect is you, you'll see um, you'll see certain Thomists, uh, and, and I place in the subtitle, Thomas, please stop groveling before the SCOTUS. You'll see certain Thomists who almost grovel uh, before the SCOTUS about this as, uh, as poor, uh, poor St. Thomas. Uh, we we kind of we're kind of a bit embarrassed by him because he did this whole thing with Immaculate Conception bad. But you don't need to do it. Don't don't concede. Actually, read, read our tradition where we have uh we have had a very rich reading of the Immaculate Conception uh, from St. Thomas in some aspects, and, and I, I hold this position, I think even richer than what uh, Blessed Scotus uh, presents. It is a very rich reading of the Immaculate Conception that goes into much deeper, uh, deeper about the idea of the, um, of the debt of original sin. And uh, also there's certain other aspects where uh, there, there's just common misconceptions, uh, for example, about... Uh, about the commenter and the Ave uh, that just get completely uh, glossed over, where it's just like, obviously the commentary and the Ave, that section is, is fake. But really, uh, we need to ask the tough questions here. Okay, if it's fake, why, why are there only three manuscripts which, do, which don't include it? Uh, why is that the case? In, in what other area of, um, of textual criticism would that be acceptable? I, I think what we see here, and this is just my brief introduction to kind of some of the things I'll be covering throughout here. And don't worry if you get confused at the end, I will have a small section where I just lay it down in very concise uh, terms. So um, I, I'll get Lexi to make a clip of that or something if, if you're just confused uh, throughout here, or you can just stick to the end and watch it. But uh, there, there's uh, what what this debate takes the form of is it takes the form of a common myth. That is just something which is perpetuated, and it's just perpetuated, and it's taken as a bias uh, within scholarship. So uh, it affects the way in which people read the data in very unfair ways. So that's why uh, when I talk about this, I do get a little bit fiery, uh, because you, you're accusing St. Thomas, Thomas of something which is uh, materially and objectively horrible. But let us begin. So I'm going to start out with uh, looking at some of the historic positions uh, in the reading of St. Thomas's thought on this matter. So this can provide us some context of the various different positions you can take uh, when it comes to what St. Thomas believed. So uh, there has been, uh, believe it or not, uh, this is this is not something which is controversial. The scholarship backs this up and uh just anybody who is who is who is read in the area will tell you that it backs it up. There has been disagreement within the Dominican order over the issue of the Immaculate Conception for centuries before the definition in 1854. This is something that's even occurring in the 14th and 15th centuries. This is something that occurs. Um, I, I give the example 
of uh, Cardinal Cajetan's work on the Immaculate Conception, which was against the definition of the Immaculate Conception, where you have Bishop uh, Ambrosius uh, Catharinus, 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 who was a bishop and uh, was close to becoming a cardinal, he uh, firmly rejects what Cardinal Cajetan says. They're both in the Dominican order. They're both Dominicans. There is disagreement amongst uh, eminent theologians within the Dominican order. Um, in, in Salamanca, this actually becomes very popular to say uh, uh, for Dominicans to affirm the Immaculate Conception and to say, uh, John of St. Thomas says this, and to say that actually St. Thomas taught the Immaculate Conception. Uh, this this was very common for the Thomists at Salamanca, which were the best Thomists of the area. They had the best access uh, to the entire corpus of St. Thomas. They had the really the best access to people who knew the entire corpus of St. Thomas, and they were debating this every single day. So, uh, you, And then also you had the Jesuits. The Jesuits became very strong defenders of St. Thomas as an affirmer of the Immaculate Conception. This wasn't something which was isolated. Yes, uh, especially early on, um, there was a stronger bias within the Dominican order against the Immaculate Conception. We can completely concede that. But uh, there wasn't this sort of um, stark contrast, Franciscans over here, Dominicans over here. That's just not, that's just not uh, the case historically. And eventually, uh, the third position comes later on, but eventually you get uh, you get three positions which crystallize. And I think the third position, um, I, I don't I don't think you can hold it. Uh, I, I don't think it makes sense uh, at all. And unfortunately, uh, Gary Goo and Hugon actually both held to this position. This was a position more popular in the era in the era after the definition. So the first position is just the the, the four positions. St. Thomas was for it throughout his entire life, and I think this is the most reasonable position. I think when you read the commentary and the sentences and relate it to the Summa and look at his other works, it's clear he just he never changed his mind and never uh, mentions changing his mind either. Second, you have the against position, which is just St. Thomas throughout his entire life was against the Immaculate Conception. This is the common position nowadays. And then you have a you have a mixed position uh, in the third. You have a they, they call it the three periods. You have the first period uh, in his early life when he was composing the commentary and the sentences where he affirmed the Immaculate Conception. Then you have a questioning period. He, they, they don't say he starkly denies, but more of a more of an agnostic period that he has during the writing of the Summa. And then you have before his death. You have this uh, illumination of St. Thomas where he goes and affirms the Immaculate Conception before he dies. That's the, uh, that's the third position, the popular one in the uh, third scholastic period. Oh, my. Okay, somebody's saying uh, this is Mad Cope. Yeah, this is what a lot of um, SCOTUS and uh, Eastern uh, Easterners are going to say, and especially... Uh, I've also seen Protestants uh, say this, but usually most of those people are functionally illiterate uh, when it comes to the works of St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, so I don't really take it personally. But yeah, I will I will debate anybody on this topic. Uh, anybody out there who wants to debate this topic, I'll, I'll debate it. Um, okay, so continuing. So now uh, looking at the positions of the scholastics during the uh, first scholastic period, during the golden scholastic period. So this would have been the 13th century. Uh, beginning uh, around the time of the Fourth Lateran Council and going to the beginning of the 14th century, so around that time, uh, some say like Blessed Scotus was was a part of the Golden Scholastic period. Some don't, but that is that's besides the fact. So you do have um, very few defenders of the Immaculate Conception during the time of Saint Thomas Aquinas. Um, one of them actually was a Dominican, uh, Father Vincent of Bouvai. Uh, Bouvai, I, I don't know how to pronounce that. Bouvai is French. I, I don't know how to pronounce French stuff, but he was one of the few defenders during the time of Saint Thomas, uh, Saint Anselm, Saint Bonaventure. Although Saint Bonaventure was open to the possibility, Peter Lombard, uh, he was against it. Alexander of Hales. He was against it. Uh, you, you have a bunch of theologians which are against it. But what's most important to recognize is unlike the period of the, of the second scholastic period where you have uh, these very fine distinctions which are, um, which are brought about uh, when it comes to this issue, you don't have much development of language. Uh, for example, um, something as simple as the difference between uh, original sin and the debt of original sin. Um, 
that that isn't even recognized uh, during this period. Uh, you don't um, you don't have this uh, this precision of terms. So what we have to do is we have to look at the uh, the context and the um, sort of self definition of authors. So this is something we see we uh, we will be going throughout uh, this video uh, when it comes to Saint Thomas. Uh, this is when we look at the way in which he defines terms, it's very clear. So uh, just just to put out what the Immaculate Conception is, uh, we declare, pronounce and define the, that the doctrine which holds that the most blessed Virgin Mary in the first instance of her conception. So this is important. We have to hold that it's in the first instance of her conception. So conception happens. First instance happens It's in this first instance by singular grace and privilege granted uh, by almighty God in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the savior of the human race, was preserved free from all stain of original sin, is a doctrine revealed by God and therefore to be believed firmly and constantly by all the faithful. Now, uh, when, it, when we look at what is defined as um, the stain of original sin uh, during this era, during the, uh, the, area, the, the, uh, the era of the Roman college theologians. You look at like, uh, for example, Perone, Frangelin, uh, the, although Frangelin's uh, the generation later, Perone is more uh, to bear. We look at Cardinal Perone, how he's defining this stain of original sin. They're all going to agree. It's the, uh, the privation of original justice in the soul. So that's the question we have to ask ourselves. Does St. Thomas believe that there is a privation of original sin in the soul of Our Lady? And the answer is no. He does not believe it. Now, what's a privation? Uh, because uh, a lot are going to misunderstand this. A privation, uh, if you look at uh, On the Principles of Nature, um, Chapter 2, there's a very good section on this where St. Thomas is explaining what a privation is. A privation is the capability where it is fitting of having a different form. That's all it means. And that is the form of original justice. So this, this is what needs to be demonstrated by the anti-Thomists, by the, uh, the, the enemies of St. Thomas. This is what they need to demonstrate. Oh, yeah, and, uh, it's kind of funny. Uh, Peter Diamond said that only heretics think that St. Thomas taught the Immaculate Conception. Yeah, that's kind of funny. I should do a review of that video. So uh, first, the first difficulty, and, the, and I'm going to... Uh, develop this by series of difficulties. So the first difficulty is found in the timing of the Immaculate Conception. So if we remember, first instance, that's the timing. So um, what? in order to understand the timing of the Immaculate Conception, we have to understand the difference between uh, what I'm going to call here, uh, some called active and passive conception, but I think what's more helpful is first and second conception. We have a difference between first conception. And first conception uh, occurs in the body. So um, the medievals, to, to put it more bluntly, although uh, to put it in modern, this is just me putting it in modern terms. They didn't believe in um, human life at conception. They, they didn't believe in that. They didn't believe that there was the rational soul at conception or at the, the sort of um, the coming together of uh, sperm and egg, or they would have thought of uh, sperm and menstrual blood as the as the coming together. They they would not have thought of that as a uh, as having a rational soul. They would have thought of a certain bringing together in that uh, in that first instance of creation, the the formation of the body happening, and then about a, about a month later, they would have had what's called animation. So animation is the infusion of the rational soul into this animal body. So you can kind of see an issue uh, that is occurring right now with the way in which we think about the passing down of original sin. So there would have been the distinct concepts on the one hand um, of the effect of original sin merely on this body, merely on the body. And then on the other hand, we would have had the sort of full-born original sin, which happens with the infusion of the soul. Because in order for there to be a privation of original justice, a body can't have a privation of original justice because original justice is only a form proper to the soul. So there has to be a word or some sort of concept which differs between uh, this first conception and the second conception. 
So as we'll find out later uh, through the contextual reading of St. Thomas's works, the uh, and, and actually as with the terminology of the second scholastics, this first conception, the relationship between original sin and this first conception is called the debt of original sin. So we have the debt of original sin, which is in the body, which brings forth some sort of uh, some sort of aptness to eventually uh, receive that privation of original justice. So first we have the debt of original sin present here. And then an ordinary conception for us, when we have the rational soul infused, uh, it comes into contact with the body that has the debt of original sin. And this brings about, this brings about um, the actual original sin, how we would think of original sin, the privation of original justice. But the medievals often just use the term original sin or stain of original sin for both of these. So we have to ask ourselves contextually, do they mean the debt of original sin or do they mean original sin in the sense that we use it? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. So this is why both St. Thomas and Blessed Scotus denied, denied that the purification happens at conception. They both deny it. Rather, they say the purification happens at animation or second conception, which is what I say. So we have to ask ourselves, and this is actually the, the question which St. Thomas answers most profoundly, much more profoundly, actually, I think, than Blessed Scotus. The question of what happens between this first conception and the second conception when it comes to this idea of the debt of original justice. So, uh, and I have uh, this quote by St. Thomas. Since the rational creature alone can be the subject of sin, so this is what we said, since there needs to be a soul to be sin, to have any sort of subjectivity to sin. Before the infusion of the rational soul, the offspring conceived is not liable to sin. It's not liable to sin. In whatever manner the Blessed Virgin would have been sanctified before animation, she could never have incurred the stain of original sin, and thus she would not have needed redemption salvation, which is by Christ. So uh, we can think of, um, I'm trying to uh, think of how to express this the best. We can think of the um, the foam, what's called the foams, the foams of original sin in the parents, the foams of the original sin in the parents, which is concupiscence, which the the um, saints uh, Anna Joachim had, the parents of the Blessed Virgin Mary, gets passed to the body of Our Lady, to the body in first conception, gets passed on to her body, in that she now has in her body the debt of original sin, or uh, where St. Thomas here calls it the stain of original sin. So now when we think about sanctifying grace. The subject of sanctifying grace is the soul. And through Christ, we get sanctifying grace. So if this stain was removed before animation, if this stain was removed before animation, it's very important to know, it would not have been through grace because grace comes through the soul, just as sin is in the soul, but the debt uh, is in the body. So St. Thomas is teaching, and actually Blessed Scotus, if you look uh, where he discusses this, he teaches the same exact thing, that this redemption couldn't happen before animation. Because remember, animation, second conception, because it would not be through grace. And therefore, she would not have needed redemption, salvation, which is by Christ. So, um, that that's, that's the sort of reasoning process that occurs. And I think I, yeah. Okay, so, yeah, I do quote Blessed Scotus here. It must be said that although the Blessed Virgin was not sanctified before her animation, so again, he's denying that it's at conception, because of the flesh, as it is not the subject of sin, so neither is it of sanctifying grace. She was nevertheless sanctified in her very animation, so in animation. That is to say, in the same moment in which it was necessary from the common law of the sons of Adam that guilt be in her, such that there never was, uh, nor did she contract, original sin. St. Thomas would be completely fine with this. He would say, yes, amen, that's true. So, uh, continuing. Now, uh, there's a bit of a question about after. After. Uh, this is, this is uh, a, a difficulty. 
St. Thomas uses the term after, where uh, we see in Blessed Scotus, he uses the term um, in, in, in the same moment in which it was necessary from the common law of the sons of Adam that guilt be in her, such that there never was, nor did she contract original sin. So uh, we have to recognize that actually this this doesn't really uh, go against St. Thomas here because uh, after can be used in two senses. In the one sense, it can be used of temporality, order of temporality, that is uh, order of actually moments of time. And in other ways, it can be used in the uh, sense of the order of nature. So uh, this is actually, um, this same argument could actually be made against the, uh, the definition of the Immaculate Conception. He talks about in the first instance of her conception, that is something which is naturally uh, after animation. But uh, it's not separated temporally, which is uh, what St. Thomas is getting at when he uses this uh, this phrase of after, sanctified after animation. This is something that uh, Blessed Scotus, it seems, also is holding to because he talks about um, in the same moment in which it was necessary from the common law of the sons of Adam that guilt be in her. That is, in the first moment after uh, animation, after the soul is given. And all animation means is just when the soul is given. So, um, and then he clarifies, uh, if we look in uh, Cord Libet, I think this is Cord Libet uh, 5, where I got this from, where he's using the exact same language as the Summa. He says, quote, for it is believed that immediately after conception, so notice immediately after, so it's clear he's not talking about some sort of separation of time occurring. It is believed that immediately after conception and the infusion of the soul, she was sanctified. Whence that celebrating is not to be referred to the conception by reason of the conception, but rather by reason of sanctification. So now uh, the language of purification, but but uh, St. Thomas says purifying. Now purifying is going to uh, talk about some sort of privation, a uh, removal of a privation of original justice. So obviously St. Thomas thinks that she contracted original sin and not merely the debt of original sin as, as, uh, as we're going to explain his terminology. But uh, first, Blessed Scotus used the term uh, purification. And then second, this is very important. Actually, he defines his term of purification in, in much of the same way that uh, the definition of the Immaculate Conception and Blessed Scotus are going to use the term. He defines the usage of purification as the purification from the filth of corruption is not is not to be understood as the removal of anything existing, but an impediment to any future filth. Let me read this again. The purification from the filth of corruption is not to be understood as the removal of anything existing, but an impediment to any future filth. So this actually is almost this is an, a perfect explanation, actually of the difference between the dealt the debt of original sin and original sin itself. So the removal of the debt of original sin is that not the removal of anything existing, because that would be original sin itself, but an impediment to any future filth, because the debt of original sin is that um, bringing about, uh, is that uh, inclination, I guess they are aptness to eventually receive that privation of original uh, justice. So he's defining his terms very clearly here in almost an identical manner to the definition of the Immaculate Conception. If, if the St. Thomas uh, haters out there, whether they be, uh, most of them are Eastern Orthodox, uh, but a lot of them are uh, Eastern Catholics who, who just despise St. Thomas. If they would actually just read how St. Thomas is defining his own terms, because look, this is crystal clear. If you just read St. Thomas, this is crystal clear. This isn't anything difficult. The purification from the filth of corruption is not to be understood as the removal of anything existing, but an impediment to any future filth. This is easy, easy peasy. Then there's an objection that uh, some may say, well, this is just his sentences commentary. But if you read a sentences commentary, and if you want to, it's translated online, Aquinas.cc, third book of sentences, distinction three, question one. It has the same exact difficult language, the same exact difficult language uh, that the section of the Summa has, which is uh, Tertia Parr's question 27, article two. 
Same exact thing. And actually, uh, it's fun to read the sentences commentary because he explains his language a lot better. And he explains his terms as we see here and as we're going to be uh, continuing to see. This is just obvious if you read him in context. Now, if you're reading him uncharitably or you're reading him with some sort of anti-Latinism in mind, of course you're going to read him in a bad way. Of course you are. But if you read him just like a normal person, uh, trying to figure out what his terms mean by context, with a slight knowledge of history to understand that uh, there wasn't any sort of way to even express the dead virtual sin uh, during this time, you would see uh, through your charitable reading of St. Thomas and through your, uh, through your constant um, love of what the church has put forward as the common doctor of the Catholic Church, you would just see. This is obvious. This isn't difficult. This is actually very clear once you understand his logic. And don't just spam and spaz out uh, from just a reading of one section of his corpus, uh, which is his summary of theology. So now the further issue of the debutum culpe. So this phrase, stain of original sin. What the heck does stain of original sin mean? Because this presents a huge difficulty. This presents a huge, huge difficulty. Because we're reading St. Thomas uh, saying that uh, that Our Lady has this stain of original sin. What does stain of original sin mean? Uh, so what we need to look at is we actually need to look at uh, what he actually says as parallel passages and then the, the nature of things. So first, we can distinguish between original sin... That, that's just the way in which, <clears throat> sorry, I'm still getting over my sickness. Original sin, that's just the way in which uh, uh, we're going to understand the privation of original justice. And on the other hand, the universal necessity or need of being subject to it. That's the debitum peccati originalis, the debt of original uh, sin. So there's a distinction between these two, and this is something which is perennial in Catholic theology. So um, in the time of St. Thomas, the difference between the original sin and the necessity or need of being subject to original sin, which uh, given uh, its natural course will lead to the actual contraction of original sin in the soul from the body, there isn't different terminology when it comes to these two ideas. The same terms are used. Usually just stain of original sin or original sin are used. Most people don't recognize this. So uh, they don't read St. Thomas properly. They just read it in accordance with what they've been told. And uh, St. Thomas actually does have a, a question uh, in his sentences commentary. He uh, he uses um, this uh, this phrase, a body from which it will contract a stain of original sin. That's how he's defining uh, this debutum culpe, a body from which it will contract a stain of original sin. Makes it very clear. Makes it very, very clear. This is the same exact language that's being used in the uh, Summa question. So why not just look how St. Thomas is defining it in other places? He's talking about something in the body which will lead to the contraction of original sin in the sense that we mean it. And actually, uh, uh, interestingly, some Scotists, some older Scotists, denied this, uh, this debutum culpe. They denied it. That They denied that Our Lady had this uh, necessity or need of being subject to original sin in her body. They denied it. You can't hold this. This is, you are unable to hold this. So in the same way uh, as some SCOTUS will say, well, St. Thomas's ambiguity here and there, that, that actually led to error here and there. We can actually say that SCOTUS himself was unclear when it came to the debitum culpe. He was unclear when it came to that. And this led to error. This led to error. That, that's all, the only way you can describe it. Because when you remove the debitum culpe, our Lady is being redeemed from nothing. And actually, St. Thomas's objections and his difficulties are based on this fact. Because there were, there, uh, 
there, there are some who, in holding the Immaculate Conception, fall into this error of denying the debutum culpe. And this is an error. You can't hold it. So um, that that is actually, uh, I, I think, a, a serious issue uh, that just hasn't been brought up. That in scotistic schools, there's just the, the denial of the debutum culpe, which actually does remove Our Lady from the universal uh, redemptive work of Christ. So uh, continuing, so we distinguish, uh, there's the debutum uh, remotum, the debutum remotum, and this comes from the fact that one is produced by the ordinary means of copulation, so the remote debt, and then St. Thomas actually expresses this. Uh, though the parents of the Blessed Virgin were cleansed from original sin, nevertheless, she contracted original sin. Notice she's contracting the debt of original sin. Read original sin as debt of original sin. She contracted the debt of original sin since she was conceived by way of fleshly concupiscence and the intercourse of man and woman. So that's the way in which the debt of original sin, the remote debt of original sin, is brought into the body. Is you have the parents uh, with what are called the foams. So since the parents have the foams, they pass on the remote debt to the body. And then once the body is united to the soul, this comes forth in uh, in, in original sin, uh, the way in which we refer to original sin, in the soul. So it goes from parents to body to eventual animation, which bringing together uh, brings it into the soul. Then on the other hand, we have the debutum proximum. This comes from the fact that one comes from Adam. So uh, St. Thomas says in one of his uh, quote libits, it must be considered, therefore, that everyone contracts original sin from this, that they were in Adam according to seminal ratio. So uh, when it comes to this, we have our um, descent from Adam. Adam is our federal head. In the fact that Adam is our federal head, we contract original sin. So there's, there's these uh, two modes which are spoken of, which St. Thomas is going to affirm that there is both a debitum remotum and a debitum proximum. That both of these are present in the body of Our Lady, which would have, without the purification, resulted in the privation of original justice in her soul, which is how we normally speak of original sin. Now, theologians actually disagree over whether uh, the, the common opinion is that Our Lady did have the debitum proximum, but some uh, disagree and deny the debitum proximum. But you must at least affirm the debitum remotum. You must affirm that. Because, I mean, if you deny it, then um, you're going to fall into the error of some of the Scotists, which we wouldn't want to do. We want to remain good Thomas here when we talk about the Immaculate Conception. So uh, I've, I've spoken about this uh, before, but the distinction between original sin and the foams. So you have... Um, on the far left side, uh, if you want to view it like this, you have the parents. They come together. The parents have the foams. So certain uh, flames uh, within themselves, if you want to put it like that. So they have the foams. And by having the foams in uh, copulation in the in the uh, marital act, uh, because there is certain lust between them, they bring forth uh, in the body which is conceived uh, the debt of original sin. And uh, this dead original sin, uh, once once there's the uh, the bringing together of body and soul at animation, this flowers forth into the actual privation of original justice. Uh, so St. Thomas actually very brilliantly will distinguish between first and second sanctification in Our Lady. This is, uh, this is really interesting. So um, he says, others say that the foams is a corruption of the person insofar as it impels one to evil and insofar as it makes the good difficult. And in this way, it was thoroughly taken away from the Blessed Virgin in her first sanctification. Uh, it is also a corruption of the nature by reason of which the infection of original sin passes to the child through the act of nature. And in this way, it remained after the first sanctification. But then she was purified in the second such that she could conceive children without any original sin. So what we have uh, in um, in the uh, actually he puts on a third sanctification too. So we have the first sanctification, which takes away takes away. Um, well, it results in a non passing down of the privation of original justice in the soul of Our Lady. So before that she has the debt, 
The debt doesn't the debt is frustrated by the grace of Christ in the soul in the first instance of her um, in, in first instance of her conception. But the foams remain. Now, not the foams in the sense of having a disorder in the soul of Our Lady. Um, may God rebuke any who hold that. Not the foams in that sense, but the foams in, if they have a child, it will uh, have this dead original sin. Now, in the second sanctification, which happens uh, at, the cons uh, at our Lord's conception, the foams are taken away from Our Lady. So um, this happens at the Annunciation. So at the Annunciation, the foams are taken away. And then St. Thomas continues that there is actually this third uh, sanctification, which removes all effects, all possible effects uh, of, of original sin, uh, well, of, of sin in Our Lady, all possible effects of sin. Because there are still the uh, certain effects, uh, such as the fact that she died or had certain bodily ailments. There, there were these effects that were still present uh, in the world. Uh, just because uh, she lived in the world under the effect of sin. And in the assumption, actually, these effects are removed. So we get this sort of threefold movement uh, that happens in St. Thomas's theology of the sanctifications of Our Lady. Yes, St. Thomas affirmed the assumption. I don't know. There, there's certain very silly people out there who say that St. Thomas didn't affirm the assumption. Like, do you actually, do you actually read him? Like, come on, guys. Are you guys like illiterate or something? It, it's ridiculous. Okay. So, well, sorry, I got I got carried away there, didn't I? But yeah, this is uh, this is sort of the way in which Saint Thomas is is conceiving uh, the purifications of Our Lady. So uh, now this is the this is the point in the presentation where I am just going to uh, <laughs> the autism kicks in. No, I autism is not kicking in. So this is the point in the presentation where I, if you've been confused thus far, I'm just going to present it in quasi-syllogistic form just to make it easy for you. So the, the first premise that uh, St. Thomas is bringing forward is that uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary's parents, Saints Joachim and uh, Anna, had the foams. So remember, foams, inclination to give the debt of original sin to the body of the child in conception, in first conception. So we can see this uh, where St. Thomas says, she was conceived by way of fleshly concupiscence in the intercourse of man and woman. This is teaching the debitum proximum, or debitum remotum, actually. And she was of the seminal ratio of Adam. They were in Adam according to seminal ratio. So the Blessed Virgin Mary's parents had the phones. So now such a position causes one, the debitum remotum, and two, the debitum proximum. So, from this we can conclude that Our Lady had the debt of original sin. Debt of original sin. Something which is in the body, which has a certain aptness to bring about, with the union of soul, the uh, actual original sin. How we would actually think of original sin. So, you think of a kind of like potential original sin. So, uh, we're starting, uh, Our Lady had the debt slash stain of original sin. And then if we look at uh, the second book of sentences, Distinction 32, Question 2, Article 2, which has a whole article explaining what the debt or stain of original sin is, which is crazy because nobody brings this up because, you know, nobody knows about it because they don't care enough. It makes me upset. We know that the stain of original sin denotes that which flows from the foams of one's parents in that it makes one body apt to contract original sin once the soul and the body are united. So she has the debt slash stain of original sin. And again, you must hold this. You actually can't hold the Immaculate Conception if you don't hold this. You can't do it. This is why certain Franciscan positions are incapable of being held. They are incapable of being, you, you just can't hold them. Because they erred, they erred in this. Blessed Scotus, unfortunately, in some of the way in which he stated things, cause certain Franciscans to err. This is a historical fact. There were erroneous Franciscans in their positions with the Immaculate Conception. They just denied the debitum culpe, which is an error. So, uh, continuing, the debt of original sin is in the body. Further, uh, that which is bodily cannot be cleansed by grace, but that which is in the soul. So, this this brings in the next, uh, the next point of logic, which is why St. Thomas says that the 
and blesses Godus. Uh, they both say that the uh, cleansing does not hope happen until the soul, uh, until animation, until the rational soul is uh, is uh, quick quickens the body. Because sanctifying grace, sanctifying grace is a certain accident, which an accidental form which adheres in the soul. So a purely bodily creature cannot have sanctifying grace. So this, this makes perfect sense. This makes absolutely perfect sense. In order to have sanctifying grace, which is going to cleanse our lady from the debt, which she has, uh, she has uh, incurred in her body due to the fact that uh, she was conceived by parents who had the foams. And because she has the seminal ratio of Adam, because of these, we need to wait until there is the soul in order for there to be grace to cleanse us. It makes perfect sense. But if you want to say that this happens before animation, then you are going to have some sort of redemption of Our Lady's body without, without grace. What happens when it's without grace? It's outside of the redemption of Christ, which is why St. Thomas says it can't happen. His position is perfectly rational. Positions absolutely perfectly rational that we can't have this uh, pre animation extra gr uh, gracious redemption of Our Lady, or it's outside of the outside of the grace of Christ, which we just can't hold. Therefore, Our Lady wasn't cleansed from the stain of original sin until after her conception, in the first moment of her conception, or as St. Thomas says, immediately after her conception. And also, I, I just have this quick note. If St. Thomas meant the privation of original justice, how in the world could he think that she had it before the second conception, as he indicates in several places? Yes, he says that she had original sin before uh, the second conception. How could he How could he hold? How, how are you interpreting St. Thomas when he says original sin as meaning the privation of original justice in the soul if she had no soul? How are you reading him this way? It doesn't make any sense. It's a nonsensical way of reading him. And I think if you break from the just common um, common myth around St. Thomas's beliefs on this matter and actually begin to uh, deeply read the text of St. Thomas in context, uh, both intellectual and historical, it's obvious. Why is he talking about a privation of original justice in the soul if she didn't have a soul? Why would that make sense? Why would anybody believe that? And then this purification, as he defines it, is not to be understood as the removal of anything existing, but an impediment to future fill. So, uh, okay, so here's a, uh, why did YouTube tell me to watch you on my school lunch break? You should watch me on my, your school lunch break. Okay, so Mary's body had original sin before insolment. Okay. So going back to definitions before I, I get into the other's works, because I need to clarify this. So original sin in St. Thomas can be taken in two senses. Uh, in, its, in the sort of sense in which we think. Original sin, what that means is the privation of original justice in the soul. The privation of original justice in the soul. So this is something in the soul where the soul is apt to have original justice, but it doesn't. That's the meaning we typically take. And it is heretical to say that Our Lady had original sin in this sense. It is damnable to say that Our Lady had original sin in this sense. The other way in which original sin is used, and uh, this gets clarified and distinguished in later Catholic theology. It just wasn't distinguished in this era. And in some places you see St. Thomas consciously distinguishing between the two, even in his words. The other way in which it is used is the aptness of the body. The aptness of the body for when it gets into union with the soul, it will uh, contract original sin. The, the soul will contract original sin. And this is called, in later theology, the debitum culpe. This is, this is universal teaching of the theologians. You can't hold that the debitum culpe is not in the body of Our Lady, uh, that there isn't this aptness uh, of, of the body. That she, because if you didn't believe that, then there would be nothing to be cleansed from. Uh, why, why is there this singular uh, grace of the Immaculate Conception if she didn't have the debutum culpe? That is the debt in the body uh, to, receive, um, to receive original sin. 
So um, could you post the presentation later? Yeah, I guess I could. Um, I actually, when I edit it, I'll just put it in the comments, comment section. So um, yeah, so, so yes and no, yes and no. Uh, yes, she had original sin before insolment, if you mean the debutum culpe. No, if you mean um, the uh, privation of original justice in the soul, because she didn't have a soul to have a privation of original justice in the soul. Um, yeah. Okay. I am continuing. So uh, now to, to finish it off, let's look at some of St. Thomas's other works in this era, because he wrote Tertia Pars. Uh, this was the third part of the Summa was uncompleted. Uh, he unfortunately died while he was writing the tract on penance, uh, which is begins question 89, question 90, somewhere around there. Uh, so um, St. Thomas did not finish the Summa. So this was actually one, Tertio Pars was one of the last things he wrote. So this is near the end of the life, his life that he's writing this. So let's look at other writings from this era to see whether the teaching is consistent, whether it can reveal anything more. So one of those writings is his Compendium Theologiae, which was also unfortunately incomplete when he died. So it says, Mary was not only free from actual sin, but she was also by special privilege cleansed from original sin. She had indeed to be conceived with original sin. Notice conception not animation, she was conceived with original sin, inasmuch as her conception resulted from the commingling of both sexes. This is the debitum remotum. For this privilege was reserved exclusively to her, who as a virgin conceived the Son of God. But the commingling of the sexes, uh, which after the sin of our first parent, cannot take place without lust, transmits original sin to the offspring. So she had the dead of original sin. Uh, this is what he's saying in the Compendium Theologiae. It's very clear. Once you get this terminology uh, clear, Okay, so another question. Uh, so let me get this straight. You're saying that Our Lady was born. Uh, she had original sin before she came out of her mother's womb. I'm saying that she had the debt of original sin in her body uh, before her animation. That is her second conception. And then in her second conception, she was given uh, she was given the graces of the, immac the Immaculate Conception, how we describe it now. She was given the graces of the Immaculate Conception, where, uh, whereas not to contract the privation of original justice in her soul when there was the union of soul and body. This is the clear teaching of St. Thomas. And uh, yeah, so St. Thomas, when he's defining the purification, he's defining it as the the stopping of future guilt, uh, as we saw earlier when he defines purification in his sentences commentary. So again, we, we just need to get out of this sort of mindset of taking original sin in one sense. There are two senses in which original sin can be used. There's two senses, uh, which correlates to the two conceptions which St. Thomas believed in, the conception of the of the body and then the union of body and soul, which happens in animation. When does animation take place? Okay, this is actually a fun question um, because there is debates uh, within Catholic philosophy uh, of whether there is still this separation between first and second conception. Most, and this is actually the teaching of St. John Paul II, so I will publicly hold to it. Uh, most will say that um, there isn't this separation between um, between first and second conception between conception and animation they say that um animation happens at conception which is a fine position to hold um and this is this is going to completely change the way in which we uh which we explain the immaculate conception from the way in which saint thomas explained it but saint thomas gives us a a lens into how we would uh explain the immaculate conception if we still believed or uh, as some do if we still believed in a separation between first conception and second conception between the conception of the body and the conception of the soul, which uh, we just don't believe in anymore uh, because St. John Paul II teaches otherwise. So uh, good question. So I'm not saying that I actually would explain these uh, matters. Uh, you still have to hold the debitum culpe, but there isn't this long period of which uh, the body of Our Lady had the debt of original sin, and then it was uh, eventually cleansed. Uh, no, it all happens. It, it all happens in a in, in a moment. It all happens in a moment. But uh, good question, good question. But for Saint Thomas, uh, it, it would happen a a month after, or some say forty days. Uh, depends on which um, 
if, if you want, if you want like a good, uh, sort of detailed, um, analysis of this, uh, pseudo, uh, Albertus Magnus, um, if you look up the secrets of women, um, that's a good sort of medieval embryology that explains all this stuff. It's actually where I got all of my understanding of medieval embryology. It's very interesting, very, very interesting how they, uh, how they conceived of things, which actually makes total sense why St. Thomas expressed things the way he did. Okay. So uh, the second quote is from his commentary on the Ave, which this one is a bit more of a famous one. So in his commentary on the Ave, uh, St. Thomas says, the Blessed Virgin exceeds the angels in purity. She is not only pure, but she obtains purity for others. She is purity itself, wholly lacking in every guilt of sin, for she never incurred, notice, she never incurred either original or mortal or venial sin. So too, she was free from the penalties of sin. Sinful man, on the contrary, incurs a threefold curse on account of sin. So here, he is taking, when he, when he talks about the incurring of original sin, he is taking this in the sense of how we normally use the term original sin, the privation of original justice in the soul. So when he's taking it in this way, he actually denies that there is an incurring of original sin. Now, there is a cope response to this. That's fake, bro. People will say that this section of St. Thomas is just fake. Um, and, and their reasoning is that there are certain manuscripts which don't include the section. So in order to resolve this objection that it's fake, we have to do what's called textual criticism. And for, for a little bit of background, when I was an undergrad studying Greek, we learned the art of textual criticism. Textual criticism is basically in, uh, in, in the time before printing, you had what are called manuscripts. Manuscripts are uh, all of these works written by hand. You see this uh, if you're ever on Aquinas.cc and you see these little uh, notes uh, in the Latin text. It's usually telling you where there are certain disagreements between the manuscripts. And textual criticism is how we find out which reading is the most likely one. So there's sort of three general principles to looking at what manuscript is true and what manuscript is false. So first, we look at the manuscript numbers slash, slash order. Uh, we look at manuscript numbering slash origin. So let's say you have a manuscript and there are, you have 100 manuscripts and 99 have this reading and only one has this reading. Which one are you going to take? You're going to take the 99, obviously. More manuscripts means it's more likely that the one that's corrupted. So what we're trying to figure out is which scribe screwed up. Is it easier to explain 99 screw-ups in one true, or is it easier to explain one true in 99 screw-ups? Now, the second thing, we look at the age, which is closer to the source. So if you have, um, let's say you have a, a work, and there's only two manuscripts. One manuscript is from 50 years after the death of the author. The other manuscript is from 500 years after the death of the author. Which is more likely? That's... Um, that the first scribe screwed up or that there was some scribe within those 450 years that screwed up. Well, obviously it's more likely that there's one within the 450 years that screwed up. So uh, first we have to look at numbering. Second, we have to look at origin. Uh, the second way in which we determine which manuscript is true or not is we take the harder reading. We take the harder reading. Why is this? Should, should we take the easier reading? No, we actually take the harder reading. The reason we take the harder reading uh, when we do textual criticism is because uh, certain scribes, it was their practice to smooth out texts. So uh, they would assume that another scribe screwed up when there's hard grammatical or content readings, and they would just change it. We get this in the Gospels all the time. If you look through uh, a crit like an NA28, which is a critical apparatus of the New Testament, you look at the NA28, you look at all of the variant readings. What you usually get is scribes will have heard the heard like the gospel of Mark in a certain way. 
And then they'll be printing the Gospel of Matthew. And they'll think, hey, actually, when I heard the Gospel of Mark, it was said in this way. But the Gospel of Matthew is this way. I think somebody screwed up the Gospel of Matthew. So they'll switch the way in which the Gospel of Matthew is written. And they will just change the grammar um, in order for it to say something else. They'll change the content in order for it to say uh, something else. Now, um, so usually they're, they're, they're always trying to smooth out the readings. That, that's something they do all the time in, in manuscripts. Or sometimes uh, when there's certain difficulties of con, uh, content. When there's certain hard sayings uh, or certain uh, sayings that are perceived to be uh, out of line with what the rest of an author says, they, a lot of times scribes will literally just remove it. <laughs> they'll remove it or they'll change it or uh, sometimes they'll include glosses. There, there, there's a lot of weird different things that they'll do in order to try to just smooth out a reading. So if there's something which is rocky, it's usually original. If there's something which is smooth, it's usually uh, not original. And uh, the third, the uh, the uh, third thing we look at is we think about which editing a scribe would make. So uh, we look, okay, which which reading could be better explained by a scribe's growing up? Which reading could be better explained by a scribe's growing up? Or going on their own initiative to add something or take something out? Which reading could be better explained? That that's but that's kind of more of a general principle. So. Looking at uh, the commentary on the Ave, uh, based on these three standards, the first standard, which has more manuscripts and which has older manuscripts? So I actually uh, came across an analysis of this question from the early 20th century by a, uh, ma uh, a man by the name of Father Rossi. He analyzed the question of all of the manuscripts of uh, that we have from the medieval period. Uh, before the time of printing, of the uh, Ave, he found 19 manuscripts. And he actually took pictures of all of these. So if you go to the work, you can look in the appendix and see the pictures of all of these. So out of the 19 manuscripts that he had, 16 of them had the Neck Originale. They had the Neither Original. They had original uh, sin included in that uh, phrase. So 16 had it, three did not have it. So what you'll have to tell me is that somehow the majority of the texts are the ones that are messed up. Or somehow it just happened to be that the uh, that the source which from which the larger amount of texts uh, came about was somehow more popular. Now, second... Let's look at the context. Is um, is it more difficult contextually? Which one is more difficult to have contextually? Now I'm going to share my screen real quick. Okay, let's look at the commentary on the Ave, uh, twelve and thirteen. Let's read it. Let's see if this sounds like it would be more difficult to hold. First, as regards the soul, she was full of grace. The grace of God is given for two chief purposes, namely to do good and to avoid evil. The Blessed Virgin then received grace in the most perfect degree, because she had avoided every sin more than any other saint after Christ. For sin is either original, and from this she was cleansed in the womb, or mortal, or venial, and from these she was free. Thus, and then he quotes, Christ excelled the Blessed Virgin in this, that he was conceived and born without original sin while the Blessed Virgin was conceived in original sin, but was not born in it. So this poses a difficulty. This makes a more difficult reading. So what would make more sense? That the scribe, um, that the scribe somehow added, scribe added a difficulty to the section? It makes no sense. That's not how scribes work. Uh, yeah, there's also another principle, a sort of fourth principle, is you you tend towards keeping it rather than taking away it, because scribes will usually delete rather than add. So why is this more likely? Explain to me. Uh, according to the rules commonly taught in textual criticism, you would get in any sort of university classroom. Um, Father Caps, for example, uh, he he will bring this up frequently. Father Caps, 
if you were in uh, if you were in a scholarly academic context and you were doing textual criticism on the New Testament and you had a, um, a, a reading which appeared in more manuscripts and which was contextually more difficulty difficult and you would have to uh, try to explain an addition rather than a deletion would, would you get anywhere in academia if you tried to make this argument uh, with any other text of course you wouldn't you wouldn't you would probably get laughed out of the classroom uh, or laughed out of the journal article at least if you tried to put forward something like this this is just a a, a bit of a ridiculous textual uh, critical um, argument to make and then uh, I, I think really what what puts the, the nail in the coffin for this reading being genuine is we have to look at the position of the scribes, the position of the scribes. So uh, when we're imagining uh, who were the scribes which were printing out all of these manuscripts of the Ave, they were probably uh, Dominican monks or uh, maybe Dominican sisters. They were Dominicans. Uh, they, they, most of them actually weren't educated as well as we would think. A lot of them probably had a bit of a folksy uh, sort of take on the uh, on the Immaculate Conception uh, because the majority opinion was um, against the Immaculate Conception within the Dominican order. But as I said, there was a strong minority with even eminent theologians. It wasn't like a an all or nothing sort of thing. So what makes sense? That of these probably anti-immaculate conception monks, you would have them adding the immaculate uh, something which indicates the immaculate conception. That makes no sense. Why would they add it? Okay, now the other explanation. Let's think about this. Of these anti-immaculate conception monks, you have a difficulty smoothed over where they take out the reference to the immaculate conception. That makes a lot more sense. Of course, it makes a lot more sense. So when it comes to the text critical considerations of this text in the Ave, which this text in the Ave basically confirms my thesis, because it, it really makes no sense uh, for St. Thomas to be changing his position like that at the end of his life. It makes no sense. And he uses similar language uh, in twelve and, paragraph 12 and 13 in there, which basically confirms my reading of the Summa which basically confirms the reading of the compendium, which basically confirms St. Thomas always believed the Immaculate Conception. So really, on this text-critical question, which overwhelmingly supports my uh, my reading and keeping the text in the commentary on the Ave, basically confirms what I'm saying. So uh, I guess that will be um, sort of end of the presentation. Uh, somebody was asking about um, me doing an article. Maybe I'll do an article later. Uh, I'm I'm a bit I'm a bit hung up at the moment. I actually uh, just had earlier a sort of impulsion of zeal towards the defense of St. Thomas, uh, which caused me to spend a lot of uh, quite a bit more time than I should have today uh, putting together this video. But if you appreciated this, uh, consider becoming a patron at patreoncom Thomas. Um, and if you look in the if you look in the uh, bio uh, what is it second not the bio the the description if you look at the description of the video there's also a link to a discord called the new aquinas academy where uh you can learn more about uh the writings of saint thomas aquinas learn how to read saint thomas aquinas learn some of the principles that i use to apply to uh this question so uh thank you all and as always god bless <laughs>